long term, the goal for me is to be a good father, a good husband, and if I'm only an average pastor, then so be it. But it's going to require me to put some priorities in place that will safeguard my home. And the best thing I can do for New Life Church is to be a good father and a good husband. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is a really good conversation today. I interview Pastor Brady Boyd, and he pastors a really large church called New Life Church here in Colorado Springs. And if ever you think that you have enough stress on you, just look to a leader leading a large organization. It's a complex thing to lead a very large church, and Brady's done a good job at that. They have a teaching team that I highly respect at New Life. They're doing all kinds of cool things within our city. He's written a bunch of books. But this book, Remarkable, I think has a lot to say to us today in this cultural moment that we're living in. And so while Brady's written a lot of books, I talked to him specifically about his book, Addicted to Busy, has a lot to say to us about rest and rhythms of life, as well as his book, Remarkable, that has a lot to say to us about our witness today in this 21st century upside down culture. So listen in, share this with your team. This is a great episode with some ridiculously practical thoughts from Pastor Brady Boyd. Welcome to another episode of Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. I've got a privilege for you guys today. I'm sitting with Pastor Brady Boyd, who also lives here in Colorado Springs. Brady, thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have these conversations with leaders, and I'm honored. So uh, we've had conversation and even had you speak at our conference uh, before about this addicted to busy message. So we're going to get to your new book, Remarkable. Uh, congrats. Thank you. On a book release. It's, it's no small deal. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about Sabbath. It's something that's been a big deal for you, mm. something that you impart here at your team at New Life, uh, and you're big on the idea of health and longevity. So just help us explore that a little bit. How did you come to the idea of Sabbath? When was that? How, how did that happen in your life? Well, first of all, it was out of a crisis. Like most of the, you know, most of us hard-headed leaders, we learn things because we're just going through brokenness, right? And I felt I was uh, 20-something. I was trying to prove myself to the wrong people, doing the wrong things for the wrong reason. And I was really on the verge of burnout early in my pastoral walk. And the Lord really just got my attention in a radical way, shifted my thinking, allowed me to uh, it, to really step back from ministry. I went back into radio and television for a season. And it was in that season of time where the Lord really helped me understand rest and rhythm and longevity. And then I was reading Luke chapter five, which is a fascinating chapter because Luke chapter five is telling the story of Jesus coming out of the wilderness. And then suddenly he is thrust into the limelight. He is living every church leader's dream. <laughs> Crowds of people are coming to hear his sermons. People are getting healed. He's the talk of every town that he shows up in. I mean, that's the, the American... conferences are calling. I mean, he's going to be speaking at every conference across yes. the country. Instagram's blowing up. I mean, he's the Twitter bomb. I mean, so in that moment, there's this one passage right in the middle of Luke chapter 5 that I was reading through one day, and it said, and Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now you think about the prayer life of Jesus, that when he was in front of big crowds of people, he had really small, short prayers. His prayers got longer when he was with his disciples. 
But then it says when he was alone, he prayed all night long or prayed continuously. I just, when I saw that for the first time, I realized that I had reversed that, that I was praying long prayers in front of the crowd and praying short prayers in private. And I just realized if I don't get this rhythm right, if I don't understand the, 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 the path that the Lord wants me, if I don't get this right, I'm, I'm not going to finish the race. And I was in my 30s at the time. Uh, pastoring down at Gateway Church. The church was growing really, really fast. Uh, I mean, thousands of people come in every year, brand new to the church. It was almost killing us. So I always tell church planters, be careful about wanting explosive growth because that can kill you as much as discouragement. So I found myself in those moments having to reimagine what pastoral ministry looked like, and Sabbath saved my life. I am here today as a 52-year-old leader at 25 years of pastoral ministry, and I can tell you that the Sabbath, taking a day where I focus my attention, my devotion back on the person of God, letting Him speak to me, has saved my life, saved my marriage. Me too. I mean, I was two years into ministry. I've shared it on this podcast before. and Two years into ministry realizing, I don't know that I want to drag a woman into this. I don't think that that's fair to her, to our future kids, let alone in ministry. And a lot of you guys listening, um, maybe you do steward small churches or small ministries. Um, but I think it's helpful to hear from somebody. You got a, a ton of stuff going on. Um, you entered with such a tumultuous season here at New Life. You talk about that in your books um, and just kind of the, the craziness of that. Uh, two things that you share in Addicted to Busy, I think are really helpful. Um, number one, rest is opposed. Mm. Talk about that. Like what, what do we have to oppose to actually rest well? Well, I think the enemy realizes the power of the Sabbath. I mean, our enemy sees uh, the, what Sabbath does to the leaders, the shepherds of the church. And rest is opposed because, if you, in fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, every time he wanted to go into a season of rest, like one of the moments uh, that he walks out on the water to save the disciples, you know where he was when that storm broke out? He was on the mountaintop by himself praying. He, and I can imagine he's sitting at the top of the mountain looking out at the Sea of Galilee, which is not that big of a body of water anyway. And he was looking out there. There's his disciples about to drown. So he has to stop his prayer, walk out onto the stormy water, calm the sea. And I just think that was, to me, when I read that story, I thought, this is exactly the way my life looks. I, I know I need to rest. I know I need to take a day off. I work hard, so but I need to rest well. But I can't work hard unless I rest well. That's and the right. enemy knows this. Yeah. And I have found so many times when I have planned a day off, I, I'm looking forward to that Saturday or that Friday, which are typically my days. How many times urgent matters pop up out of nowhere? And it truly is a spiritual battle for the, in the life of a leader. And you better recognize it. I actually pray, uh, Lord, protect my Sabbath. Now, that sounds weird. You would think you would pray more, Lord, help me with the ministry that I have going on Monday through Friday. But actually, going into that Saturday Sabbath, a lot of days, I'll go, Father in heaven, I'm entering into your Sabbath rest. And I know the enemy does not like this. So I'm not looking for a fight, but I'm aware of the fight. And I think there is opposition uh, because it restores our soul. And the last thing our enemy wants is for us to have restored souls, right? He doesn't want to, he right. wants us leading on empty. Yeah. And I, I feel like, um, it is a battle, but it's a battle worth fighting. That's good. And more and more leaders are realizing that, maybe even preventatively, proactively. We don't need any more big crashes in the media to hear that. Well, let me just tell you right now, I'm, I'm working with two churches, very high profile, 
who have gone through moral failures of their founding senior pastors. And if I told you the names of the churches, everybody would know them. But in both cases, as I have looked under the uh, under what really happened, as I really have sat down with the, their peers, their colleagues, in both cases, these pastors were running too far, too fast for too long. They did not know how to stop. And because the senior pastor did not know how to rest, the staff didn't know how to rest. It's they cultural. didn't have permission to rest. That's right. If the senior pastor is uh, going to the moon, we all have to go to the moon, right? We don't. There's no days off. And in both cases, uh, and it can go on for a couple of decades. In both these guys' cases, they're in their in their early 60s before they had a meltdown. But these pastors, famous pastors, huge platforms, huge ministries, if you were to ask their team and staff and families why they had the meltdown, it's because they did not know how to slow down. They didn't have the security in their heart to take a day off and step out of the limelight. Yeah, and I'm encouraged simultaneously and discouraged. I'm hearing more and more believe that we're actually, we actually have limits. We're actually human. And if we don't pay attention to those, you know, resting from work versus working from rest. And so uh, it's been so helpful. I mean, we had you share that at a conference um, because how do we just pound it in that it doesn't just magically get better as the church gets bigger? It actually gets harder. So you talk tell, about that a little bit. Well, I I, I was uh, just a, a, one story that was reminded of me when you were saying that. I remember when Addicted to Busy came out, another high-profile pastor, he invited me to speak at his conference. And I told him, I said, I got this new book on Addicted to Busy. I'd like to talk to your leaders about what does it mean to find biblical rhythms. He goes, Brady, if we teach them this, we're going to lose all our volunteers. I mean, he was literally concerned that if I told his leadership team to take a day off, that it would affect his volunteers on Sunday. And I thought to myself, here's a guy who doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't understand that actually you're going to get more out of your volunteers right. long term when you allow them to take a Sabbath day. This is there is just such flawed thinking out there about rest and this old school thinking that well you know you can rest when you die. I've heard pastors say, well we'll have all of eternity in heaven to rest. Well, you're going to get there quicker probably. That's right. I mean, I'd if you like don't another rest, 20 you years. will die. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it sounds okay. And then talk to your wife and kids about that. Right? It, how how yeah. are they thinking? Um, you say this phrase, which which I love, and I want you to explore a little bit. Ruthless is required. And let me talk about disappointment for a second in the midst of that, because I know that you get to the spot where it's, who are you going to disappoint, right? If you're going to take rest, Sabbath, you can't live up to those expectations. So talk a little bit about ruthless disappointment when it comes to having any kind of margin. I love uh, John Ortberg's definition of pastoral leadership. He said, Pastoral leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate that they can accept. <laughs> so Isn't that good. beautiful? It's so powerful, good. right? Yeah. And I, I, I actually, on my phone, on my calendar, I, for many, many years, especially when I took on this assignment at New Life Church, on Friday and on Saturday, literally on my calendar, was stay home with Pam and the kids. It was on my calendar. So when good-hearted, good-meaning people would come to me and say, hey, Pastor Brady, come to my... Uh, whatever, or come, would you come do this? I would say, you know, that sounds very interesting, but I already have something on my calendar for Friday night and Saturday. Yep. And they would say, oh, okay. I said, you know, I already have something on my calendar. And I wasn't lying because on my calendar, I had to purposely put down, go home, be with Pam and my, and at the time my kids were eight and six. I mean, they were tinies. They were babies. They were they needed their dad around. Yep. And if you don't schedule rest and rest doesn't normally happen, 
And, and, and that doesn't mean there were lots of Fridays and Saturdays where I ended up in the hospital with, you know, with people or if there was a crisis, a real crisis, mm -hmm. a real emergency. Pastoral ministry requires us to be, you know, be, be available for those things. So I wasn't legalistic about it. But I also realized that if I don't guard these times, that these times will get taken from me. And I needed it. And the reason I've been able to stay really consistent I'll tell this, let me tell you a, a beautiful church growth strategy. A lot of you are, are pastors that are listening to this and you're looking for the secret sauce to church growth. Let me give you something. Stay steady and consistent at your congregation for a long time. I have found that a lot of people are just looking for consistency. They're just looking for something that is a bit predictable. They're looking for a leader. You know that I, I just read this study that the number one reason that people stay at a church is because they trust their leader. It had nothing to do with tricky sermons yep. or skinny jeans on the yep. worship team right. or the best programs or whatever. It was truly, can I go to that church and trust the character of that leader? And the best thing that I've done in the 25 years of pastoral ministry to protect my heart is to guard those times with my wife. Like, I've only had one girlfriend for 33 years, and I'm married to her for still 30. dating? Yeah, we're still dating. Still dating, all still right. Still dating. And my daughter and my son are 19 and 21. They're in the church. They're good kids. I'm so grateful for them. I'm blessed to have these kids that are now, I'm an empty nester. So I've experienced the fruitfulness of this, but it takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of work and a lot of disappointed people along the way that wanted me to go. You know, you know how many fundraising banquets are there on Saturday night? I mean, you, you can't imagine 30 or 40 times I've had to say, I'm so sorry, it sounds like your missions trip to whatever, sounds like a great night, but I knew if I said yes to that, I would be there at 6 p.m., I would be there till about 9.30, I would get home tired, have to get up the next morning, preach to my congregation with an empty battery, and my kids didn't have their dad at home on Saturday night. So I've just had to learn, say, long term, the goal for me is to be a good father, a good husband, and if I'm only an average pastor, then so be it. But it's going to require me to put some priorities in place that will safeguard my home. And the best thing I can do for New Life Church is to be a good father and a good husband. That's and right. that takes time. That's right. You're going to have to choose. I mean, a bunch of pastors, when I looked back at the, at the stats, there was a time when about four and a half years pastors would stay. And then anecdotally, I just would ask pastors, when did you feel like you have really caught wind at your church? Five years. Five years. And I thought, what an evil trick of Satan that right before you got to trust. And I think it takes longer to cultivate trust today. Maybe that's a different podcast yeah. um, and a whole another episode. But cultivating trust in a skeptical culture, they just need to see that it's real. People have been damaged and wounded. And so uh, that is not sexy at all. And that's why we want to have these conversations to say longevity, uh, actually living in a space of health long term, continuing to produce. Running a marathon, it's actually possible. I, I love this, just to kind of end on addicted to busy, you say the reward is the presence of God. And many times we try to say, if you do this, then blank, your church will grow. I mean, that's what we can know is that Jesus had the presence of God in those moments. And the crowd, social media, it just ain't doing it for me. I don't know about for you, but when I get it, it doesn't exactly calm my spirit and my soul. So, uh, so good. Um, guys, I just, I wanted to make sure that we stop there for a second. I want to dig into remarkable. And so, Interesting, I've heard really only this word accented from you and Seth Godin. So it's really interesting. Seth Godin talks about it, something worth remarking about. And I love that. Like, is the church of today worth remarking about? And um, most times through expletives or through discounting yeah. the church, you're calling us back 
to be a church that is known. What, what's your true heart and passion behind this book? Well, I was, I told the story, actually I preached this message to my church recently, and I told the story of a, a mom who was pregnant who ended up in our city. She was in the emergency room about to give birth to a child. She was running from a violent boyfriend, and a nurse there in the, in the hospital heard her story, connected her to Mary's home, which is an apartment complex we have built that's fully, it's full of, of moms who've experienced homelessness with their kids. And I found that to be a remarkable story. And she began to, this, this girl, who I'll call Linda, that's not a real name, but she said, all along the way, I ended up at Mary's home because of remarkable people that mm. I met. People that would fill up her gas tank, people that would give her food, people that got her into Mary's home. And I thought, this woman's life has been rescued off the streets of our city. Her entire destiny has been changed because of people who had embodied the remarkable teachings of Jesus. They were kind. They were, they were showing biblical hospitality, radical hospitality stories. They were not famous theologians or famous preachers. In fact, she didn't even know the people's names that had helped her along the way. And I found that to be fascinating. Hmm. So as I'm listening to her story, I realize in my heart that God's calling the church here in Colorado Springs and around the world back to the original design, the original intent, which is the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. When those two things really get embodied in a group of people, when a community of believers really begin to live out the Great Commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, with all your strength, love your neighbors, yourself, then the Great Commission actually is an outflow of the Great Commandment. Go into all the world, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all the ways that I've taught you. So Matthew 28 and uh, it becomes possible when a group of people begin to live out the Great Commandment. And I know for me, I just have no interest in pastoring a church that's fat and comfortable and is disengaged from the cries of its city. I said that to my church. I said, if you're wanting to be a part of a really comfortable country club church experience, I said, this is the worst place in town for you. You said, I can recommend a church down the street. No. No. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I appreciate this. And, and you push hard in this book. I mean, I think you take some risks. We talked about that before the podcast, and which I appreciate. I think if we're not pushing into these areas that, you know, even the world is referring to just as social justice, just as things that are normal, we need to be that kind of church. Uh, many times we just think scripture is just kind of written to people randomly out there mm -hmm. in the ether. This was written to a specific group of people in Corinth. So help us see a little bit. Uh, what was Corinth like? How would you compare that to our culture? I found that fascinating. Well, Corinth had been devastated uh, 100 years before Paul arrived, and it had been rebuilt. So it looked a lot like America. When Paul came into Corinth, the city had had this re revival of sort, an economic revival. It was at a, on a key trade route, and uh, and it was prospering. It was exploding. And there were, there were really three things in Corinth that people worshipped. They worshipped money, sex, and power. And, and that sounds like Vegas. It sounds like America, right? So there was tons of new money in Corinth. In fact, the joke in Corinth when Paul was there was there were very few, there were a lot of poor people who had become rich quickly. So it was new money, not old school money, but new money. And then they worshiped uh, entertainment. The Isbian Games were there. It was like their form of the Olympics. So uh, when Paul was there as a tent maker, the reason he was making tents is there was no affordable housing in Corinth. And the only place for these athletes to live while they were training for their games was in tents. So Paul went to Corinth as a tent maker because there was a, a huge need for tents 
in Corinth for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, the Temple of Aphrodite, who was right in the middle of Corinth, one of the most sexually perverse places in all of the known world was right in the middle of Corinth. I mean, what went on in Corinth, it would make us as Americans uh, blush. I mean, and I would say that our culture now is deeply perverted and very sexually broken, but it had nothing on Corinth. So that's the city that Paul walked into. People that were hungry for power, uh, they had a hunger for entertainment, and they had a, a, a super lust for just uh, unfiltered and unbridled uh, sex with no boundaries. I mean, that was actually what they bragged on. What happens in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Wow. That, that, I mean, that was before Vegas. So Corinth was Vegas before Vegas. So when Paul walked into Corinth, he met a group of probably 40, 50 people. We don't know exactly how many, but it was not very many people that had found Jesus and their lives had been radically changed by Christ. So Paul's looking at this little small group of people saying, listen, I know you live in a culture that is completely devastated and torn up by money, sex, and power. But I want you to remember what Jesus told us to do. And so the whole, the, both letters to the people of Corinth is him calling us back to the person of Jesus. And I, I just love, First and Second Corinthians are my, two of my favorite Pauline letters because I, I just find myself living in Corinth. I can look around even in Colorado Springs. It's a and Corinth was a beautiful place. It was kind of on a, uh, an isthmus and it was, it was surrounded on, on both sides by water. The, the, the land was very fertile. It was a retirement colony for Roman military leaders. So they'd served there 20 or 25 years and Caesar the, would give them land in Corinth and they would move there. So it was a military town, a sexual town, a town full of money and power. Sounds like Colorado to me. Sure. And sure. I have just, I just think this book, when I was writing it, I was so fascinated by all that Paul began to say. I could hear him speaking to the American church, calling us back to a centered place, a place where, I, I said this to the church recently, that in my study of church history, the church has always been at its purest and most powerful when it gets pushed to the margins of the culture. And that's what's happening right now. A lot of people are having a hard time with this, but the church is actually getting marginalized right now in America. We're no longer the center of power. I mean, honestly, that's been gone for 30 or 40 years. The culture war was lost 20 years ago. Now, a lot of people are still fighting it, but that, that battle's been lost, okay? So the church now, you know that most people in El Paso County where we live, it's not that they're antagonistic about the church. They just don't care. They just don't care. It's I moved here to go to the mountains on Sunday. I'm not even thinking about the church. They have. They think the church is completely irrelevant. They think. Uh, they think we, as dedicated Christ followers, that we're relics, that we're that we're inconsequential to their lives. That was Corinth. That's where we are now. Okay, so we have some challenges with that. We can get mad about that and be angry all the time. Be instigators. I talk about being instigators. And the book, we can, we, can, we can yell at the darkness and expect somehow for us to come back. We're not coming back to Mayberry. We will never live in Mayberry again. And maybe we should have never wanted to live in Mayberry before. It, it, the good old days weren't that good. Well, I, I know I had this conversation with a sweet saint of a woman. She's 73 years old. She recently, she said, Pastor Brady, I just want to go back to the way it was 
when I was a kid. I said, so when you were a kid, that was in the 1950s. And she said, yes. I said, you realize that women had n did not have equal rights, that race, that we were telling black people to drink out of other fountains. Voting rights were being taken away from black people. Uh, women had no uh, rights in the workplace. I said, that's not exactly, that's not the nostalgia that I long for. So America in some ways has made huge advancements with gender and race. And I, I do feel like that we're at a place now where things are actually looking more hopeful in the areas of racism and the areas of gender equality. And I, so I was having that conversation. It's funny how we always long for the good old days and it's hard for us to see God at work right in front of us right, right now. Um, so I, I feel like this book for me, as a, as a guy who I'm approaching middle age, you know, I'm 52 years old, it was, it, was a, it was a reminder to me to get back to the original design that God has for my life. That's I want good. to be remarkable for the last years of my life. One of the things we're deeply passionate about at Stay Forth is helping leaders take their next right step. It's unbelievable how many leaders today feel stuck. I think we live in this age that can be so overwhelming to us. And especially as leaders, I think you can compound that times five. So many leaders feel stuck and don't know how to get unstuck. And what we find is that leaders don't have anybody in their corner to help them make objective decisions. And we get to play that role as the coach. We get to walk alongside of leaders. And our favorite process is 10 tools in 10 sessions. And we literally get to watch slow miracles happen. We get to watch life transformation happen. And what we say on our coaching team is that we are not in the leadership business, we're in the freedom business. And we get to watch freedom happen and unfold right in front of our eyes. If you're a leader, everybody seems to want something from us. It doesn't mean that people are evil, but just that they are human around us. And we get to create a space where people get to process their next decisions, they get to take their next right steps, and they get to move toward health so that they can have a long-term impact. And just a few days ago, I had the opportunity to just reflect back on all that people are learning. Those that we're coaching are making some pretty major decisions, and we forget that because we're always getting to experience that with people we coach. Here are a few of the things that I wrote down in people's lives. One leader discerned a major decision around calling, and I got to celebrate that with them. Another leader is feeling healthy and alive for the first time in years. Another one designed his schedule around the important instead of the urgent for the first time ever. One leader is doing less and coaching their leaders more. One is saying no to good things she isn't called to and finding margin. One is relocating their family across the country after discerning what the good life is for them. One is practicing Sabbath for the first time. One scheduling more time for dates with his wife and daddy time with his kids. Man, we love to hear that. One is peering through disorientation to dream about what is the next season of life and ministry look like. Another one is starting a project small instead of being overwhelmed by launching it large and never starting it. One is nearing the completion of his book. And there's so many other stories that we can share. We love watching leaders take their next right step. It is so fun for us to watch these incremental miracles happening. We have four folks on our coaching team, me and three others, and we would love to walk alongside of you in your life and leadership journey. If you're feeling stuck or you're just feeling a little disoriented or overwhelmed about the next season, our favorite process is 10 tools in 10 sessions where we get to walk alongside of you 
help you make your next right decision and figure out what you are uniquely designed to do. So if you're interested in finding out more about coaching or you know somebody who would be, head on over to stayforth.com backslash coaching. That's stayforth.com backslash coaching. We want to help you take your next right step. Uh, I thought it was really helpful uh, that you talk through instigator a little bit, but, but walk us through three general postures and then give us that fourth way that you talk about. Yeah. Well, I talk about being an instigator, about yelling at the darkness. That's one temptation we have right now. A second one is to integrate, just to compromise our convictions, to never bring up our differences, to lose our saltiness. I mean, so Matthew 5, Jesus says, if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? To be trampled under feet uh, by men, right? To be discarded, to be treated like waste. So I don't think we should give up our convictions. In fact, I'm asking my church to take on more convictions, to really to really believe what we believe, to know what we know, to not, to not give up. So no, don't yell, don't give up your convictions and be an, an integrator. But also the temptation right now is for us to isolate ourselves, to create these holy huddles. And we see a lot of this in the American church right now where they've kind of given up on evangelism. They really don't want messy, broken people in their pews. And so they've created these holy huddles where they're just kind of waiting on Jesus to come back, hoping to be rescued. Well, that's, there's a problem with that because Jesus calls us the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Don't put your light under a bushel for men not to see. So we're actually called to be out in our city, to be, to be bringing good news to people who are starving for good news. So we can't yell and be instigators. We can't uh, uh, integrate and, be, and, and live with compromise. But we can't isolate ourselves either and create holy huddles. So I'll talk about a fourth way. And that is actually to go forth as ambassadors, called out ones, to be, to be wherever you find yourself. The fourth way is to be a witness, to, to, for, to live a life that people want to talk about. When they look at the way we forgive, when they look at the way we treat our sexuality, in other words, how do we talk about the power of sex? Because we are a sexualized culture, and I'm actually going to preach a sermon soon at New Life about uh, what the Bible says about sex. We'll probably have record attendance. That'll be you know? fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should get the attendance bumped back up in one <laughs> one solid week. One solid week. And uh, it, and then I, what does it mean to be at your school, to be at your work, and to live a life so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of the person of Jesus, that actually people want to say, what is, what is different about your life? The way we treat each other, the way we solve our disagreements, the way we're married, the way we ra are raising our kids, the way we're generous with our time and our resources, our money. There should be something about our life that causes people to notice. And so we're not doing it to flaunt our religiosity. We're not doing it to be churchy. But I do think when you really radically begin to follow Jesus, that's one of the most revolutionary things you can do. The opening, the opening quote I have in the book, is from the great apostle Alice Cooper, the rocker. And he says, drinking beer is easy. Trash in your hotel room is easy. But following Jesus, man, that's radical stuff. I love that quote from Alice Cooper, who was, I don't, I don't know where Alice is with the Lord, but I don't think he was a Christ follower for most of his life. Drinking beer is easy. Trash in your hotel room is easy. But man, following Jesus, now that's radical. And that's, that's really what I'm calling the church back to is being radical. Coming back to the revolutionary ideas that changed the world in the first place, the way we cared for the widow and the orphan, the way we took care of the poor and the sick, the way we loved one another, the way we could create 
multi-ethnic, multi-gendered. The great, most powerful thing about Christianity is how it dissolved away social classes and allowed a very diverse group of people to worship together. That radically changed the world. And I think the world's hungry right now for the church to get back to its purest form. Yeah, I mean, ironically, I think maybe nobody's more ready for the church to be the church than society, yes, than our culture. And they're sort of taking us to task on that, to say we care more about justice than you do. Maybe our lives even live, look healthier, more honest, more integrous than yours do. And so what, what do you think gets in the way of that fourth way? Because I don't know that anybody would, would truly argue the other ways are the best way to go, right? You've spotted them well, you've characterized them well. What gets in the way, Brady? I think, I think the greatest barrier we have right now is our tribalism. We have, we are live, most of us, if we were honest, uh, are living in echo chambers. We're living with people who vote like us, who think like us, who have the same skin color as us. And it's hard for us to see outside our tribal distinctions. Uh, we are, we're longing to be around, and it, it makes us feel safe. And this is actually built into the human DNA structure. When you feel pressured, the first thing you want to do is hang around people like you because there's a sense of safety when you're with your tribe. Sure, the, the tribe culture, right? A wild animal is going to get me if I'm alone. Get with people that are like me. The problem with tribalism, though, is that it requires that you have an, a common enemy. Uh, and, and those enemies tend to be other human beings, mm -hmm. which, which takes away our evangelistic fervor. And that, and that honestly snuffs the light out of our church. The church cannot be the church if we're going to be partisan in our politics and tribal in our thinking. And that's a hard message. Most pastors are not going to preach that. In fact, it's easier, quite honestly, to grow your church right now just by being tribal, about buying into partisan political talk. I don't think we're called to, we're called to something holier and more powerful and more revolutionary than our tribe, though. And uh, I think that's the big barrier right now to the American church. And I tackle that head on. Uh, in the book about the, the difficulties, the, the pitfalls, and the inherent vice, quite honestly, of living in a tribal culture. In America right now, in, in, my, in all of my adult life, I have never seen our country more divided and more mm -hmm. tribal than we are right now. And, it's, and the church looks exactly like the culture. Hmm. So much in there. And uh, maybe we just need to attack tribalism on a whole nother posture. I'd love that. Let's um, do another podcast podcast Because it. it is so... Uh, it's so divisive, right? I mean, there's there's two choices. You're in, you're out. Um, and obviously, the political space is ugly and, and social media space is ugly and it's, it's entering more and more of that. So fascinated by that. We'll dig into that some other time. Midway through the book, you talk about grace um, being hard to accept today in our culture. And it was almost a side note in there. But why do you think we just want to cling on to who we are so much without this grace that just disorients us and just knocks us off. Well, it sounds too good to be true. And I think most people would rather wallow in their brokenness than accept something that they can't understand. And really, the radical idea of grace is, a, is, is way, it's, it is so hard for people to wrap their mind around a God that loves them and cares for them and has already chosen to forgive them. Everything in our American mindset, our Western mindset, requires us to earn everything. But the radical message of grace is that it can't be earned. It has to be received. And I think it's hard for people. We've been taught to be victims. We've been taught that uh, you have to earn everything. And grace is a free gift. And just to receive the free gift of grace. In fact, I find that the thing that probably changed my life more than anything else is when I realized I couldn't earn it, where I had just to receive it. 
and I'm an ambitious guy, a hardworking guy. I feel like I got uh, a lot going for me, but uh, what the most radical thing I ever did was say yes to grace and say, I received this forgiveness. I believe it. I believe it's a gift that God wants to give me. And when I just said yes to it, I, it's like a thousand pounds of guilt came off of me in a moment mm. when I said yes to grace. And that's what I hope as people read this book, that they will find the oceans of grace that they're called to swim in. And by the way, when you realize you're swimming in oceans of grace, it's kind of easy to give other people a bucket full of water when they need it because you're swimming in oceans of grace yourself. That's right. I mean, pushes against scarcity yes. and toward that abundance. And even back to kind of connect the dots between that and Sabbath. You got to receive it. Here's the gift. It's waiting under the tree, but you got to unwrap it. You exactly. got to be intentional. About it. So, Brady, well, thanks for your work. Love the teaching team up here. And again, maybe that's a whole nother podcast. We talk a lot about teaching teams. We talk a lot about sharing the load. Love what's kind of unfolding here. Uh, you talked about Mary's home and some of the incredible things happening in our city. Thanks for the way that you're blessing our city. Um, talk a little bit about yourself. We always want to kind of like put the pressure back on you. What are, just get really practical with us. Yeah. What are some ways that you seek to stay healthy, your life, your family, your leadership, your ministry, so that you can continue to go the long haul? Well, someone asked me the other day what I do for fun, and quite honestly, I, I'm, I'm at my, I'm, I'm the best human being I can be when I'm with Pam and my children, and I'm, I'm at home. I'm, I'm really, that's, I'm a pretty boring guy by design, and uh, I, I, I love my life because uh, I have, a, a, this past summer, I celebrated 30 years of marriage with the same woman. Congratulations. Uh, my, thank you, and my kids just moved off to college. They're thriving, so I'm experiencing empty nest for the first time. I feel like I'm retired from that, that stage of parenting. I'm never retired from parenting, but it's been such a rewarding season uh, to in this stage of my life. And I think, I think, I think just being faithful, you know, I, I'm 52, so I'm, I'm trying to lose some weight. I've lost about 20 pounds. So I do think there's something to be said about eating well. I, I, I try to get a lot of sleep. I mean, sleep is our friend uh, and not being guilty about sleeping in a little bit. And the, one of the most powerful things we can do for the health of our body is to take a, is make sure we get good, a lot of rest. You know, I tell people buy a good mattress and buy good shoes because when you're not in one near the other, you know, make sure that those are things are important. But I think, I think uh, I can gauge how well I'm doing with the Lord by my private time with Him and just making sure I have unhurried conversations with Pam, but also make sure I have unhurried conversations with the Lord. Those were the things that practically that have kept me really stable and safe and kept me out of addictions, kept me out of affairs, kept me away from the pornography trap. It's just making sure I have a lot of time with Pam that we've remained friends. And I, I know you're a bit younger than me, not much younger, but I tell young married couples, man, make sure you stay friends with your spouse, that you really like each other. And, and make sure that you have time together, unhurried conversations together where you can really talk, where it's not, where, you know, date nights should not be organizational nights. That should be unhurried conversations with your best friend. Put your phone away, put your calendar away. Yes, Lord, and help us, and help us, help us to make sure that we work well and we rest well and keep those two things in tension and balance. And you'll get to the end of your life and you'll feel rewarded. 
That's good. Uh, this is probably my favorite question on our podcast because nobody's really talking about this stuff. Mm. It's a massively spiritual issue, but who's actually talking about that? I love I, I love that. I don't think anyone's mentions, mentioned mattress or shoes. There's always a new <laughs> one on here. There, we, we may like compile this. It's a wealth of wisdom. Um, last question. Uh, I know we've both been deeply impacted by the late, great Eugene Peterson, and, uh, and he just lived that out so well. And so um, just share kind of a couple of the things. And we have a lot of admirers. Um, and, you know, for whatever spread of God's destiny we stepped into, we got to spend time with him. Um, we miss Eugene a lot. You guys have talked about that on your podcast and shared about that. What did you learn from Eugene about this slowing down, about this health, about this long obedience in the same direction? I love that he never, when I asked him questions, and I had three or four times with him, I spent some time with him up at his house in Kalispell on Flathead Lake up there. And um, I, I always loved that when I asked him questions, there was always a pause, that he never got in, hurry, in a hurry. He was never wanting to be quickly impressive. He wanted to be slow, and his, it, it was very measured speech. He would answer questions with such wisdom but with such grace, and it was, and you had to listen. You had to lean in for the answer. Uh, you had every word was like uh, marrow off the bone. It was. Uh, I I looked at him, and I think the first time I met him, he was in his late seventies, and I thought to myself, if I could get into my late seventies by the grace of the Lord and become a man like that, where I. You could tell there was a real. There's a, I'm looking at a picture uh, right behind you right now as we record this podcast. That's at his house, and I'm sitting there listening to Eugene tell me something. I think I was asking him in, in that picture there about communion, and the way he just graciously would answer my questions without trying to impress me, but trying to help me. I thought that's the kind of man I want to become. Someone who genuinely cares about the person in front of them who wants to answer their question to help them and not impress them. He, he was just, just a wisdom, and uh, I miss him. I mean, we, I, I pray the Lord would give us more of those men and women. Uh, we need them. And I pray that many of you guys listening, um, guys and gals, will be those kind of men and women. Amen. Um, I'm praying we're on the edge of a health movement. Uh, yes. So, guys, uh, pick up a, a copy of Brady's book, Remarkable, Living a Faith Worth Talking About. And uh, thank you for living that out, for being honest as well. And also, I reference Addicted to Busy. Uh, I've given that away to several church planters. I think it's a practical space um, for you to look at how have I gotten too busy. Let's just be honest with yourself. It's a great first anonymous start. Pick up a book, start reading, uh, so you can make some of those changes and shifts. Brady, thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you, Alan. It's been a joy. So many good thoughts from that conversation with Pastor Brady. I just want to leave you with two questions. Number one, what are your next steps with rest? What are your next steps with rest or Sabbath? And secondly, what remarkable practice do you need to reclaim? What remarkable practice do you need to reclaim? I was convicted as I read through the book and as I had that conversation that there are some things that, that I used to do that for whatever reason, I've just kind of fallen out of love with. I just used to be maybe burning white hot in my faith in different areas that I've just sort of neglected some of those practices. And many of those practices are what actually make us salty and luminous to the world. They may make us look like freaks a little bit, but as we stand out in our faith, they make us a curious people. So 
as kind of a benediction for this, kind of a sending at the end of this podcast, whatever I send you back into, whether it's at the gym, whether it's continuing on your commute, whether it's heading into your busy day next, as you take your earbuds out, I just wanna remind you to be remarkable, to live a remarkable faith, one that is curious and unique to this world, one that won't quite be understood, but a life of devotion and dedication lived out to God and to his kingdom. Go forth, my friends. We'll catch you on the next episode. Shine, shine, we ain't focused so long.